you've got to follow the law. Who cares if it's a little bit ungentlemanly? This whole idea that we must continue to be gentlemen is a bit severe. I enjoyed the days when Australia were abusive, so I'll enjoy the days when we have aggressive man-catting as well. Welcome back to Cricket Central, the podcast where we discuss all the stories, big and small. We've got the full crew here again this week for a surprisingly um, dramatic week of cricket. We said last week it would be a bit of a a down one, but uh, in terms of both actual results um, and some certain actions within the games, uh, which we can get to in a second, um, there's been quite a lot going on. Um, So how have we been, guys? Ethan, I'll start with you. Anything exciting up in Melbourne? Uh, cricket season's getting underway this Saturday. So I've, I've put my hand up to coach a junior team, actually. So I'm, I'm waiting on a response there. But that would be very exciting if that goes ahead. Okay, very interesting. We'll, we'll, a few, we'll, few more listeners to the podcast. Yes, yeah, definitely. They can come here to, to get some good advice about how to play cricket. Will we be seeing some, some Ethan ball? Uh, what, what's your tactic going to be? I did have the, the famous moon ball against, I think, Keramuel back in the day where the, the 14-year-old kid playing seniors was on about 30 not out, last over before drinks, and I bowled it as slow as I can. Nice knee-high full toss, and he swept it straight to uh, mid-wicket and was was caught out. So maybe I'll have to flip him that one for a bit of strategy. <laughs> we will have to talk about whether you're going to be telling him to do the man cat in a bit as well. That could be interesting. Uh, Navad, how's your week been? Yeah, uh, quite good. I went to came back to Melbourne for a few days just to see the family um, and then came back up to, to Canberra. Actually, quite a nice day today in Canberra. So, um, yeah, not bad. Uh, been, been all right. Been a bit busy, but other than that, yeah, same Navad as usual. Oh, very good. I've had a we've had the World Championship bike race here in Wollongong this week, so it's been very exciting actually. And the whole the whole town's been out along the streets, and uh, yeah, some good races too. Actually, you're all laughing, but it's a big event that we had here. Only the second time it's come to Australia, so you really should not laugh. Uh, Pearson, how's your week been? Apart from having phone difficulties before? Yeah, no, the phone difficulties are ongoing. I. My phone stopped working about a week ago. It's yet to be repaired. So I've had a diminished week technologically, but otherwise I'm doing fine. Well, the amount that you're on it all the time, I can't believe it hasn't broken down before, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, fair point. Anyway, um, we've got plenty of cricket to to talk about. Obviously, Australia's T20 tour of India, um, which came to an end last night. Um, and then England uh, in the midst of their marathon tour of Pakistan with the five T20s over there. So we can get on to that. But we really do have to start talking about the MANCAD, um, which was thrust back into public's attention this week. Uh, in the in a women's ODI match um, of England against India, England needed 17 runs to win in the final ODI of the series with with um, just one wicket remaining. When Deepti Sharma, uh, the bowler from India, incredibly decided to run out Charlie Dean at the non-striker's end, um, doing a man cave to to win the match for them. Um, and of course, uh, as we discussed. I think in about March, um, an MCC rule change um, has made this completely 100% acceptable and within the rules now, but it's obviously still for many people, uh, you know, against the the spirit of the game, you would definitely have to say. Um, And there's been a lot of discussion about it. At the time, the main commentator, Georgia Elwes, um, said it left a sour taste in the mouth. Uh, We had Sam Billings going on a whole series of tweets on Twitter about it, um, saying there's not one person who has played the game that thinks this is acceptable. Uh, Stuart Vaughan and Jimmy Anderson also making comments. Uh, and then, of course, on the flip side, you've had some Indian fans on Twitter rushing um, to the support of the bowler, um, calling the, the English hypocrites. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure what that's about, but making some vague allusions to the um, World Cup final of 2019, I think. Um, Probably nothing too new about the Indian fans doing that, but uh, it is a big discussion. Um, and to dissect it, um, I'm very pleased to say we've got our resident umpire and the godfather of the podcast, Vastship, on to first off explain the rule in all its detail um, to us. So, Vast, first off, how are you? 
I'm good, thank you, Teddy. How are you? <laughs> yes, I'm very good. We're very excited to have you back on. It's been a long time between drinks for you. We've been speaking about you a lot, or more so, probably more accurately, yelling at you. Um, but uh, yeah, so we do apologise for that. No, no, all good. Interesting topic to discuss now. Yes, yes. So basically, um, what I guess just go back to to the basics for us. Sort of, what is the bank and when is it? illegal like how do you have to perform it for it to be legal um and yeah just sort of explain the specifics of it to us yeah so i, I can see why it um causes such furor and debate um among cricket fans all around the world the mcc's kind of um had a tradition of sitting on the fence with man catting 2011 came into the international game there have been some tweaks you reference um the change uh, it used to be in Law 41 under unfair play. Now it's in Law 43. Well, actually, I like it. It doesn't come in officially till October the 1st. So you referenced that. And obviously this game happened before that. The reality is that change doesn't actually change the wording um, of the law. So the, the law's been under unfair play, but there's nothing in the actual wording of the law that um, infers that it's unfair to do it. And that, that is the issue um, and the dilemma we have. So I'll just go through and briefly read it out if the non-striker is out of his or her ground at any time from the movement the ball comes into play until the instant the ball would have normally been expected the bowler would have normally been expected to release the ball the non-striker is liable to be run out one thing i wanted to flag some people seem to think the bowler has to be in the delivery stride that previously was the rule in 2017 that changed so for any point when the ball comes into play yeah. i.e when the bowler starts his run up so okay you can so just so stop what that's what it means by in play when it starts the run up. Correct. The ball is in play then. So you don't even have to, uh, you know, put that back foot down and, and, and roll your arm over. You can just stop before then if you see um, the, the batter coming out of his crease. Uh, in terms of this specific um, situation, we mentioned it's been moved from unfair play to run out. So that in many people's mind was an admission from the MCC um, that, uh, it's now considered to be fair play, but they did release a statement, which I thought was interesting after this incident um, in the India and England women's game. Um, and they pretty much said, look, respectful debate is healthy and should continue. Um, but the MCC's message to non-strikers continues to be rem to remain in their ground until they have uh, seen the ball leave the bowler's hand. Uh, I guess you could say at the end of the day, and this isn't really a definitive argument one way or the other, it's down to your own personal moral standard. Um, uh, the captain's well within his rights to uphold the appeal in the same way that the captain is well within his or her rights, I should say, to withdraw the appeal. Should they say the bowler appeals and the captain thinks, well, that's not what how my team wants to play the game. They're well within their rights to withdraw that appeal. Um, from an umpiring perspective, if there's an appeal and the umpire adjudicates that the batsman was out of its crease when the, um, when the uh, stumps were disturbed, then out is the correct decision. And again, it goes back to this moral standard. And that's um, something which I presume you gentlemen are going to debate over now. Yes. Yeah. Just one final thing before that. Um, so within the rule, uh, it doesn't have to, there's no element of the batsman getting an unfair advantage at all in it. Is that right? Because, you know, if you, if you look at this particular dismissal, what the batsman was doing, it was probably, if anything, she was staying in her crease longer than most batsmen do um, for the majority of the time. Uh, so really, if this is the case and people start doing this more consistently, batsmen are going to really have to change how they uh, how they move from the non-striker in, which I guess isn't a huge deal. Well, as they should, you would think, if it's deemed to be an unfair advantage, Perhaps. there's no reason why steps shouldn't be taken to... Um, you know, but this isn't sure that it doesn't unfair happen. advantage. I don't think anyway. It's hardly getting a head start. It's you know half a, a quarter of a second or something. Anyway, what's well? What's I think that just, is it within the right. spirit of the game for you? What are your well, one last point? I would say you're talking about not much advantage. I don't think you're going to see bowlers pull up unless they are convinced that the it's not going to be a deliberate tactic where every no. ball the bowler is stopping or maybe yeah. I can catch them an inch out. This idea is if they're, they've are they already taken two or three strides. If the yeah, bowler is continuously not, stopped, that's not what. 
well, that in this situation, she hadn't taken two or three stones. She was barely out of her crease. I think that the bowler did this in this case just because they needed one more wicket and she thought, oh, here's an easy way of getting Well, that's wicket. back to the ethical dilemma. I think, and don't quote me on this, from watching the video, I believe there was a, a signal from one of the other fields, I'm not sure if it was the captain or not, miming, like mimicking, you know, knock over the stumps to the bowler who then goes in and does that. So it could have been something they'd picked up on the previous few balls and, you know, uh, nine wickets down the batsman's a tail ender batter rather is a tail ender um who's probably not um worried about that sort of thing but um that's the reality of the game you can argue that for so long it's seen as an unfair act you know uh, <laughs> again from a purely rules point of view even before this change on the first of october as i said before um by the laws of the game you can do it and uh, quite frankly i personally uh, from an umpiring spec perspective don't have a problem with it. You've just got to, you know, officiate it as it's there in the rule books. It's not much of an opinion, but um, as the strongest I could probably get on it was, um, sure, it's there if the, they're taking a few strides, but if it's, you know, a, a close run thing and they're only very uh, minorly going out, then I don't think the bowler's even going to try um, and and leave their crease. Anyway, we'll pass it on to someone yes. else now because I'm sure the others have very uh, – you know, well, strong opinions on this and not so sitting on the fence. Yes, we'll go with you first, Navod, because I have heard that you do have a strong view. Regardless of what the laws are, is this against the spirit of the game? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I just, I don't know, I, I'm very, I'm still traumatised about the Ashwin Thiruman dismissal, the man-cat dismissal um, from, you know, all those years ago. So I think, I don't know, I think in that case, Thiruman was, was quite out of his crease. Uh, so maybe it was a little bit more uh, acceptable that man cat. This one was a little bit weird for me. I didn't think there was an incredible advantage, Ted, as you said, in this situation in particular with the man cat. That's why I just think it's a little bit out of the spirit. They're just preparing for the run, right? It's not something, they're not like halfway down the pitch already. They're still within, I guess, like the, I guess, 25% of the pitch that you have to run between. So I don't know. I, it just felt a bit wrong for me. I don't know. And for some reason, it always seems to be India who who's caught up in these man cut incidents. Not sure why that's a correlation, but yeah, the uh, the, the women's team took a took a page out of the men's team, it seems, and or rather Ashwin's book, uh, and uh, yeah, started a man cut. Yeah, a little bit weird, but I I just think yeah, it's a little bit out of the spirit of the game. Yeah, Ashwin was really enjoying it. He was saying all sorts of stuff about it. Uh, Pearson, do you have a similar view? You know, I'm I'm gonna be slightly annoying here. I'm actually gonna defend Vass to the surprise of probably some people here. It was against England, but as a basic rule of thumb, I think it's a law. Follow the law. I mean, it's a whole it's the whole positivism thing. Just sit there. Doesn't matter if the law's moral or immoral. I'm sure you know this from law school, Ted. But yeah, literally, the law is moral. The law is immoral. It doesn't matter. It needs to be applied. It did feel a bit shifty because it felt premeditated to me. I think it was Vass that mentioned a bit of a signal from another fielder. I'm inclined to say that's probably true. It definitely looked it at the time. However, I would still say it's within the rules of the law. Yes, it's a bit shifty, but you've got to follow the law. Who cares if it's a little bit ungentlemanly? This whole idea that we must continue to be gentlemen is a bit severe. I enjoyed the days when Australia were abusive, so I'll enjoy the days when we have aggressive man-catting as well. That's my view on the matter. Bad luck to Charlie Dean, but she should have stayed at her crease. Well, I wasn't expecting you to uh, have a go at the gentlemanliness of the cricket game, and I'm quite disappointed by that, I would have to say. Um, but there was someone who said on Twitter, because you make a good point that it is the, the law and you know, perhaps we should just go along with it. But then, um, you know, there are a few people on Twitter were saying, well, why do we have a law that goes against what basically every cricket player really, except for maybe the Indians, thinks is um, against the game. It's just something that's not a part of the game. So what do you propose? How far does it go? Yeah, exactly. Can a batsman run what do we do? down the pitch and, and start? Yeah. Like well, I think the whether you get whether the batsman gets an advantage from it is, you know, I know it's a little bit of a grey area, but I think that could work. Um, and no, grey areas would, can't work. Well, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like that. Yeah, the, anyway, I, I we'll think, I think that's poor. We'll move to Ethan. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think... I think it is against the spirit of game, but you can't really have too many complaints with, with the laws. I think it's it's an interesting case now because if you get batters to look at where the bowlers are 
whether they are releasing it, it it might impact their ability to judge the LBWs when asked for help on the reviews in the same way the umpires have now stopped looking at front foot no balls just because it's hard for them to look back up and concentrate. Um, but I, I think it's it's a, a relatively easy fix. One of the issues now is it happens so infrequently that it's just not on people's mind. If, if this was happening every game, then people would pay more attention to it and it probably wouldn't happen at all. Um, personally, as far as rules go, I, I used to, for some reason, think that the bowler had to complete it as part of the same action. And I, I think something like that should come into play. I don't like the idea of bowlers pretending to bowl and then stopping and then waiting for the batsman to walk out because they're not looking and then taking yeah. the bails off. Uh, Which I think is basically what happened to that in this situation. Yeah, Shouldn't uh, batters be taught you watch the bowl or they just... Yeah, agree. But that's, that's not what a what are, you, what are you watching? Well, but you're completely changing cricket. That's just... But that's what you get brought up with. You watch what the are, ball. What, what, what do you... The... Yeah. Oh, yeah anyway, is... sorry. Ethan, what did they teach on. you at Coburg? Where have you played? <laughs> Ivanhoe. <laughs> Ivanhoe, that's the one. <laughs> Go on, Ethan. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a valid point, but I, I think sometimes your focus is just on the other batsmen, where they're going to hit it behind the wicket, where the ball might might go. And honestly, I reckon sometimes if the bowler can just bowl it and fake the delivery, sometimes you might just go out of your crease out of habit and reflex. And I'd hate to see that happen. So, I mean, it's an interesting debate, but um, I'm surprised with the trajectory that the law is going in, in terms of making it, almost normalising it. Um, but you can't really make any complaints against the laws. Yeah, I guess so. The other thing is that, oh, Pearson, we'll go with you here first. What is there saying? a way of, just as a sort of almost intermediary position, is there a way of formalising a warning, perhaps? Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Because I know a lot of people have brought up the, there's the famous video of Chris Gale giving a warning to someone, that type of thing. Could that be formalised, Vass, or is it well, a bit I, unusual I to write in the laws of the game? You must give a warning first. Because that was stuff people were abusing. Um, I mentioned uh, this to mm. Teddy when we discussed this um, on the phone okay. this afternoon, mm. and that was my first thought was that's whenever I've been st- struck with this, was very yeah. rarely, uh, that's always been the idea. You go to the captain and the captain will say, well, you know, have a warning. Okay, we picked up that you're doing exactly. this. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt that you're not doing it with an intention to grab an unfair advantage, yeah. but yeah. don't do it again. That's the sense. And I think that's what I would it, do in response to kind of what Ethan was saying. I would very much, uh, I'd be very surprised if we saw people try and exploit this at the community level. I think it's just because it's on the international. This doesn't happen. This is not something that people are focused on. They're more worried about getting the ball on the pitch than they are about stopping and, and now, noticing where the. So- Things can uh, change quickly. Yeah, and that's why I think that, correct. I, I mean, Pearson's kind of right there. I don't think you can, the MCC aren't going to put that in, in laws that you can get one warning yeah. and then the next time it happens. Although warnings do exist for other things like short uh, and unfair and dangerous uh, short and fast pitch bowling. So there are instances where warnings are in place for unfair play. Perhaps that's something that can be explored if people do decide to, um, exploit the rule, but no, that, that that's I think that's a, a sensible a sensible way of approaching it. Yeah, I, I just I think Ethan makes a good point. I just don't know why they're going down this path of more leniency. Though, like, um, you know, in the end of the day, it's not a huge problem. Batsmen will just learn to stay in the crease a bit longer. But I just don't see why they've just answered your question. Then. Yeah, but I don't see why there's this change. Like, it was perfectly fine when people saw it as something that. You weren't supposed to do. I don't see how the. Well, I think the improved. MCC sees this as moving out of the grey area a little bit. They're moving it more into the it's appropriate area than it's yeah, not appropriate. And I'm asking, well, I don't know why they've done that. But anyway, any final comments, Navad? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm just uh, I think it's bad. That's my final comment. There you go. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm very happy that two of us at least are standing up for this well and Ethan yeah. as well so yeah and that's Ethan. good yeah <laughs> how rare that myself and Pearson end up on the same side of an argument yeah I, I I know particularly on something that goes against the English I'm impressed by myself at this point it's very he's turned it into a compliment about himself <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> I will 
<laughs> well, it's been great to have you on, Bess. You can stay out longer if you want, but uh, I think you. No, I'm afraid I'm not not too uh, focused in on the cricket at this, this point in time, Teddy. There are more important, well, not more important sports. That's probably not a good tagline for this podcast. But there are other things to focus on. I'll let you have your uh, in-depth discussions, uh, and I'll, I'll be on next time you have some query about a rule. Yes, and I'm sure we'll need you again when the summer comes around with our daily podcast. So. Um, anyway thanks a lot for coming on Bess um and Pleasure. with that we will get on to um, the Australia and India series um which India wrapped up 2-1 last night um but it's been a very interesting three matches um I think you'd have to say and we'll just sort of go through match by match a little bit um because there is quite a lot to discuss uh in the first we had a real shootout um India setting 208, thanks to uh, Navod's favourite cricketer, Hardik Pandya, um, with 71 of 30. Um, and Surya Yadav with 46 of 25, really performing well there. But Australia delivered an almost perfect innings um, from their standards in response. A quick fire, Cam Green 61 early, Smith 35 of 24 in the middle overs to steady the ship. And then Matthew Wade, 45 off 21 at the end to lead Australia home with four bowls remaining. So, Ethan, um, Australia in recent times have really uh, become, it's really become their trademark to win with low scores. Um, but did this match show that we can also do it another way? Yeah, you don't classically associate Australia as a team who's happy to chase down these, these 200 scores. I think Wade and Stoinis have been a, a revelation in, in recent times with their ability to you know, go over 10 and over in the, the back end of the innings and what they did in that World Cup was sort of set a new platform. But but this was a different sort of game because we got quite a good start at the top as well, which is what you need to make those big 200 scores. And Aaron Finch has converted single-digit scores in ODIs to scores in the 20s and T20s, which... Uh, Honestly, it's not too bad, but the big revelation from this series and from this game was Cameron Green thrust uh, to the top of the order, opening the batting, um, and, and his free-flowing shots look absolutely wonderful. I mean, you have the, the free-flowing stroke play of Cam Green and then the stiff stroke play of Aaron Finch uh, throwing the Indian bowlers off, and it, it, they went off to a fly-up. The platform was set, a bit of hiccups in the middle, um, but then Matthew Wade and his sublime form got it done at the end and to me that's sort of quite a statement so that we, we are quite a shout at this world cup um because if the toss goes your way and you end up chasing you can pretty much beat anyone with the lineup we've got yeah yeah 100 percent. i guess it is a matter of doing it a bit more consistently and there are a few um difficulties in there we can talk about steve smith's position as we seem to a lot uh, a little bit later pearson just to um give a a bit of data behind our uh, ability to to win. I'm putting a, a good, a positive spin on it, but basically our our lack of high scores. Um, you did a bit of research over the week, and um, what? Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't make for great reading. Our um, the sort of average scores that we've had over the past uh, little while in T20s. You'll get to, it's difficult really to knock you too much. You have won 14 of your last 20 games. That's still a 70% win rate. That's not bad. At the time I'd done the stat, it was 14 of 18, which was very good. Um, however, they do often come in lower scoring games. Having looked of those 14 wins, only four of them occurred when Australia hit a 160 plus total. So the takeaway is one of two things. One takeaway is they don't win high-scoring games. The other takeaway is their bowlers are very good. Now, it depends really the angle you want to take on it. There is very much the pro-Australian angle would be they don't score over 160 because they only win chasing and they're only ever chasing 150. However, there are still a few games where it's high-scoring and they don't win. The few games that they did win chasing 160 were a mix of chasing and setting, so I don't think there's a great deal to glean from that. But it does suggest just generally you don't often go on and hit massive totals like some other sides do. I mean, you look at the remainder of this series after that 200, you didn't look like hitting a score that high thereafter. 
you did well in the last game to get to 187. I'm surprised you got as far as you did. But it doesn't look to me as if that's a particularly common thing. Whether that works for you or against you will obviously come down to how the ICC prepares the pitches. But I am anticipating probably a relatively high scoring tournament. And that could go into a situation in which you struggle a little bit more on 180 part pitches. I would also say Cam Green looks good. This may be the first time I've ever complimented Cam Green. He's not, maybe looks good is the wrong word. He looks awful doing it, but it's effective. His 19 ball 50, I think it was, which is the quickest 50 by anyone except Maxwell and David Warner in Australian T20 history. It was an effective innings, and he did try to slog every single ball he faced over Cal Corner. What I would note is there's a pretty high chance he won't be there come the World Cup. We'll be going back to Warner and Finch, neither of whom are as high of scorers. So I do think, just overall, you look a side who's much better at defending a 160 than chasing a 200. But that may well be the case for quite a few teams. So yes, you could win the World Cup. You might not. You're definitely in the running. But if you can either pick Cam Green or someone else start scoring aggressively like that, then you definitely raise your chances significantly. Yeah, well, I was going to bring this up later, actually, but seeing we're discussing, we may as well go now. Um, there are really some questions with, uh, apart from alongside Wade, uh, Green and David, um, Tim David with his 50 in that last game and a bit of a cameo in the first game, they were really the two stars um, and they're the two players who aren't in our sort of first team at the moment, Ethan. So do you think there is a way of us getting um, them, them in there? Um, well, I'll let you answer first. I had one sort of idea that I can bring up, but uh, Ethan, what do you think? I think there's a, there's a few ideas. I don't think any of them are particularly realistic. I think as an Aussie fan, your hope is that probably Finch retires at the end of this T20 World Cup and we weave in Cam Green thereafter. Um, I think Stoinis and Wade are probably too solid at six and seven to allow David entry into the team as well. I, the issue is the middle order is a bit shaky. I think Mitch Marsh was in great form last World Cup. There's question marks over whether that will carry through. We've got Maxwell 4 and Smith 5, none of, none of whom are particularly um, setting the world alight, although Smith has been decent without being prolific. Um, but I, while I would gladly take a risk and play David or Green in, in those positions, I, I can't see that being realistic. So I think we'll go with the the same squad as we did with last World Cup. Mm. Well, I'm a little surprised about uh, your sort of slight praise of Smith there. I was fully expecting um, another attack on him. I know, Navaj, you have not been a big fan. Um, he did have that one, I think, a, a 35 in that first match, but apart from that, didn't do much. Navaj, do you think perhaps at least to get Green into the side, um, uh, taking Smith out? Yeah, I think Smith taking Smith out is definitely a good call and, and putting in Cam Green, Cam, Cam Green instead. I just think really Aaron Finch has got to go. I think I know it's like we're on the 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 I guess the heel or the the toes of a I don't know if that's a, that's not English, that's not an English phrase, but we're, we're close to a World Cup, is my point. And I know we're really close to one, and it's sort of weird to drop your captain about a month away from a, a massive World Cup like that. But I think he's just had too much time to try and prove that he should be in the side. So I don't know. He he should have, when he made that ODI retirement announcement, I think he also should have retired from T20 and then that would have opened up a nice spot. Um, but yeah, as, as, in terms of Smith, I think it's clear that his, his like role in the squad isn't really useful. It, it's, it's more of a, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a downside. It's, it's, a, yeah, it's really hindering. That's what I was trying to say. It's a hindrance for Australia. Um, I, I just think in the game that it is now, um, you know, of course, when it first came, uh, when T20 was first arrived on the scene, um, someone like a Smith in the side, the way he's batting now, would have been quite beneficial. But I think it's moved on from that. We, we need players that are aggressive and consistent. And while Smith is somewhat consistent, he's not aggressive. And I think that's the main thing. Someone like Tim David, or even like we've seen in this series, Cam Green, has that consistency, has that aggressive nature and can score quick runs. And I think that's what's really more beneficial for a team like Australia. 
um, and not just Australia, any T20 team for that fact, uh, for that matter. So I think, um, yeah, Smith, I think, yeah, if we're having Cam Green, I think, uh, yeah, swapping Smith out for Green is, is the right call. Yeah, well, I've always been a big defender of Smith, at least theoretically, in the role he plays, because I think there still is um, an argument for after, for in case you do lose a, a couple quick wickets, having someone like Smith who can sort of remake the innings a bit in those middle overs is still sort of helpful even in T20. But the problem is he's just not doing it consistently enough. There's too many games like in last night's game where he scores nine for 10, then goes for some big heave and then gets out. Um, so, yeah, I am probably am leaning more to your side. Um, one final option I was thinking, this one's not really uh, one that could happen either, but sort of brings up another thing to come out from this series, and it was Cummins not having, uh, not being in the greatest form. Uh, he was none for 47 in the first match, one for 23 off two in the second, and one for 40 off four um, in uh, the third game. So potentially there's a chance of, you know, we would have a lot of batsmen at, at, at this time and a lot of part-time bowlers, but could you perhaps, Pearson, um, uh, bring in Green for uh, Cummins even? I, mean, I, I generally agree with you, Ted, but with the utmost respect, that's a horrific idea. It, it, makes, it makes no sense. You're never going to need a batsman to bat eight, and you need, particularly in Australia of all places, you need at least 12 overs to go and bowl full-time pace bowlers. The idea you'd be relying on pretty much, well, 40% of your innings at minimum to be on part-time bowlers is a horrendous idea. Unless you can guarantee that it means you hit 200 every game, which you won't because you don't always lose eight wickets in a match to even bother needing the tail enders to bat. So I, I, I don't think it's necessary. I, th I think it's poor thinking. And no, unfortunately, they can't bowl part-time enough to become full-time <laughs> bowlers, as Ethan has eloquently put in the chat function. So I think you will have to just look and say it's either seven bats with four bowlers or six bats with five bowlers and you're not in a position where you have that quality number seven at the minute that's a bowling all-rounder so you've got to just go for the seven batsmen don't do eight yeah i think you are probably right there but um definitely some selection questions for the australians uh i could just to go through the other games we've covered a bit of it already um but in the second match, uh, it was just eight overs each because of rain. We had a, another 43 from Matthew Wade. Zampa got three wickets, um, but Rohit Sharma with 46 off 20, finally sort of unleashing. Um, and then Navad, an incredible cameo by Dinesh Kartik at the end of 10, 10 off two, uh, which you were uh, very impressed with, uh, I know, um, got uh, India the win. Well, I'm not sure I was impressed. I was just more astounded that yeah, there was a full-on article on ESPN talking about how incredible Dinesh Karthik's 10 off two was like he scored 10 runs like it's a four and a six okay great but like I guess in he the did same, it in, in two balls that's that's impressive 10 runs though that's it doesn't get rid of the fact that it's only 10 runs arguably Asif Ali won last night <laughs> against England hitting 14 off three it's the rise of the one over innings that's what I'm thinking <laughs> I guess in the context I think it's in the context of this game because it was only eight overs. I think, sure, maybe it had a bit more of an impact. I just thought it was a little yeah. bit weird to be writing a whole article about how great Dinesh Karthik was because he hit 10 runs. Like, okay, yeah, it was it was a bit strange, yeah. Yeah, um, we also saw Hazelwood get hit for 20 um, off and over by Rohit Sharma um, as well. So that's a, a rare sight. It, um in T20s. Uh, and then finally, in the last game, uh, another very interesting match. Cam Green came out looking like Chris Gale with some huge heaves early on um, to, as Pearson said, the, the fourth fastest um, T2050 for Australia, but yeah, just behind Maxwell and Warner. Um, but then India brought the game back with um, the spin bowling of Chahal and Aksar Patel on a bit of a grippy sort of Hyderabad pitch, you would say. Um, but then Tim David, uh, 54 of 24, got Australia to a pretty reasonable score of 186 in the end. 
Um, we were watching this Navad uh, and Pearson. Navad, it was quite an interesting uh, batting innings for the Australians, sort of seesawing a bit. Yeah, definitely. I thought the opening partnership, uh, which was mainly Cameron Green, uh, not so much Finch, but Cameron Green just played, he just, well, when he connected with the ball, that is, um, they were just massive shots. I mean, most of the time he just heaved and, and missed it. But when he did connect, it was they were fantastic shots. Um, and, and some of the batting, like his cutting was good. Um, yeah, some of his pull shots were good. But it was just when he when he hit the ball, it was good. I guess you can say that about any batsman, but it was really a good fun to watch, really. Then he fell. Um, and yeah, Australia, I thought, kind of just capitulated. Aaron Finch, uh, quickly gone. Um, Stephen Smith, gone. Uh, the glue, as uh, I've nicknamed him, Smith. Uh, and Maxwell... Um, disappointingly, only six off 11, so he's gone. Josh Inglis um, started to sort of steer things in the right direction, but ultimately 24 off 22 is just a bit too slow. And again, he fell. Um, and yeah, so it, it was looking pretty grim for Australia, but Tim David, um, I think, was really, and also um, to some extent, uh, Daniel Sams as well, um, really uh, steered Australia to some, a somewhat respectable total after losing, after having such a great power play and such a great opening partnership. And then losing those quick wickets, it was, yeah, very much as you described it, very much a seesaw kind of game. But, um, yeah, Tim David is just an absolutely fantastic player. I think that's why I'm a big, big sort of uh, supporter of him. And I, I really think he's just too good to be dropped uh, in terms of batting. I know it's too many batsmen, but um, I just think he's, he's great. Whether he'll be good in Australia against that you know, international quality is a different story. He's obviously performed quite at a, at quite a high standard during the IPL um, and yeah, that's, again, he's a Mumbai Indians player, so I'm a big fan of that as well. But yeah, whether he'll be able to do it against international quality players um, in Australia, I know he has played the Big Bash, but I wouldn't really say that's international quality. But um, and he wasn't yeah. that good in the Big Bash, really. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, so <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how he does in the World Cup if he does play. That is, um, but I think really he's he's really shown that he, he's quite a, a talented and quite a consistent as well, consistent player. Yeah, for sure. And then, as I said, at 186, you thought we Australia was a good chance. Um, but then in response, it was a pitch that was mainly good for batting, except for um, a bit coming for spin. I think four wickets came from the Indians. And Australia's spinners couldn't really have the same impact. Um, they allowed Surakuma Yadav to have another impressive innings of 69 of 36. And, that, and then Virat Kohli, as Ethan tells us, fully back in form now. Um, with 63 off 48, put India right in control, uh, but it still went down to the final over. India needed 11 off it. Daniel Sams was bowling. Kohli set the first for six, um, but then hold out to cover later on um, and meant that uh, Pandya was at the crease needing four off two. And then Sams, I was just watching it back just before, interesting decision to bowl a wide Yorker, um, even though third man was up and... Uh, Panja got onto it and went for four. Um, so that was the game. Uh, it got their money's worth there, um, the Indians, in that match. I think we've probably discussed most of the things from Australia's perspective. But yeah, India, uh, Pearson, maybe go to you. The pieces are sort of coming together um, with Surakumar Yadav and Hardik Panja sort of giving a bit more pace in those middle overs and then some great depth in their bowling, would you say? Yeah, India's a strange one. Because they, they are, on paper, a very, very good side. They generally do impress when they play. They've beaten you comfortably. They certainly swept past us when we played them. I think that was 2-1 in our series as well. They do look a good side. I'm still concerned by their openers, would be my only complaint. Now that Virat's back in form, that solves a lot of issues for them. Because previously, I felt their top order was slow and a bit meek. I've, I I know Sharma is rated very highly. I've still never seen him perform in a T20 match before. What about the second T20? <laughs> oh, it was not that great. 46 up Yeah, 20. okay. That was okay. Wait, what was his total? 46 up 20. That was all right. Yeah, okay, That that's not bad. I'll give him that. But I didn't watch that, so I can maintain I've still not watched him perform particularly well. But I do think he and Rahul, Rahul's probably more of a scapegoat in this regard occasionally have a tendency to just either not kick on or to just bat a bit slowly and grind out a sort of 30 off 25. This certainly isn't the first series we've seen that happen. It happened regularly in the Asia Cup before it. 
I think if they can come into some form, they're a real danger. Coley being back in form, as I said, really helps. Of course, it does. Any top batsman in form is always going to make a big difference. I think Suya Kumar Yadav is one of the best T20 batsmen I've ever seen. He may be top five all-time best T20 batsman already, in my mind. I'm not sure if he's world number one or two right now, but he's not miles off number one if he is second. Um, he, he does occasionally have a bit of a limitation to the offside. However, he has the ability to step across and hit pretty much everything to the leg side. There is a situation in which he hits pretty much every game, a solid 50 odd or 30, and it's doing well. Hardik Pandya helps. I think his bowling is arguably more important than his batting at this point. It's something that's very underrated about him and that India side. I think him performing is going to be very important. And then, as you say, the bowling attack is solid. It's a bit unspectacular, if I'm being honest. I do think they missed Jadeja a little as that second finisher slash number seven. However, I do still think he's they have enough there to work with. Maybe the only complaint I could bring up, and there's probably some other people on this podcast more informed than I am, I don't fully trust their seamers outside of Jasprit Bumrah. I rate their spinners highly. I still don't think I've seen their seamers do particularly well. I know Avesh Khan came in. He got torn apart, really. Arshdeep Singh has been hit and miss, but not bad. I still don't think they've settled their bowling attack yet. I have a feeling they won't. Harshal Patel got smacked as well in the second match. Well, Harshal Patel's a weird one because he doesn't play half the time. Then when he does, he seems to get smacked. He takes wickets, but he goes for too many runs for a death bowler in my book. I think they'll have a similar World Cup to England, in all honesty. I think the team's pretty similarly set up. Both have a couple very good spinners. Both are lacking in quality pace bowlers. And both have a very explosive middle order with the bat. I don't, personally, I don't think India can win the World Cup. I know that's harsh. I think they could make the final. That wouldn't surprise me. I just don't think that they have the players that can come off when they can, particularly in the top order and in the pace bowlers to defend or set quite high totals on flat Australian wickets. So yes, they're a good side. I think it's a bit overdone to say all the pieces are coming together. They're still maybe four players off being that world-class side that they probably would like to be. Hmm. I think just a, just a point on Hardik Pandya, I think he is sort of the player that um, that Australia is looking in at like Stoinis or like Cameron Green. And I think, um, yeah, he... I think yeah, he's he's sort of that ideal player who can really perform with the bat, um, and he's such a destructive player. We finally got the old Hardik back uh, that we we missed when he was injured, and he came back and couldn't really perform to the, the same standard that he he had. Uh, and he's finally come back in, in great form. And yeah, he's just one that can really perform the bat and then also perform quite well with the ball. So yeah, for Pearson, as as your comment said, with the uh, the pace bowlers, I think Hardik is also quite um, a good bowler there. Uvinesh Kumar is also another name that came to mind. But again, um, yeah, he just gets pummeled a little bit. I, I do think he he was really good, um, you know, around 17, 2018, around that kind of time. But he has dropped off a little bit since. So I'd like to see him come back. But yeah, unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think I have to agree with Pearson. Yeah, I'm just, before we move on, I'm just going to look here just for the sake of clarification. The pace bowlers selected in the India World Cup squad for this World Cup are, and I'm having to run through the whole squad to find them, so do bear with. We have, um, well, there's not many of them, Hardik, Hardik Pandya as an all-rounder, um, Jasprit Bumrah, Bhuvneshwar Kumar, Harshal Patel and Ashdeep Singh. My suspicion is, well, I think we'll see three of them play at any given time. That's excluding Pandya. Pandya would be the fourth bowling option, being that he bats six. I'd expect those three to definitely be Bhuvneshwar Kumar and Jasprit Bumrah. I think Harshal Patel and Ashdeep Singh could prove a weak link as that third seamer. But it's, to be honest, having read that, it's perhaps not as weak as I make out. I still think it's a bit of a risk, but I don't think it's too bad. Yeah, it is interesting because we do seem to be saying this about a lot of teams that we're not really so sure how they're going to go. They, you know, not completely fixed. Um, 
So we'll have to discuss at some point who our favourites are for the T20 World Cup. Um, uh, and that brings us nicely on to the other matches on at the moment, England against Pakistan in Pakistan. Uh, and Pearson, uh, I guess to start us off, just run us through briefly what's happened in each of the games so far. Sure, it's been quite competitive. It's been all four games thus far have been played in Karachi. I think the last three games are in a different location, but I might need someone else to confirm that. Yeah. Uh, the games themselves haven't always been particularly close. Last night's fourth game was very good. The others less so. Uh, the first game of the series, England chased down 160 with four balls to spare. Relatively comfortable, probably an underperformance from Pakistan. Um, Numbers-wise, it was Mohamed Rizwan, who's had a good series, if at times a bit too slow, up against Luke Wood, who on debut took three for 24 of his four. England were led by Alex Hales' comeback 53, and Harry Brook, who I should emphasize has had an excellent series to date, hitting an unbeaten 42 off 25. Moving on to the second game was quite impressive. Most people were saying it was a 160-165 par pitch. And I think a lot of people were amazed when England managed to hit 199 on that wicket. Led most notably, you would have to say, by Moen Ali, who hit 55 not out of only 23 deliveries. But all in all, they were still quite comprehensively beaten somehow by Pakistan. Quite comprehensively, 10 wicket win. Incredible. To be fair, there were only three balls to spare, but it was a very comprehensive. I was very impressed by how they went about that, to be honest. I think that is going to be, looking forward to the World Cup, Pakistan's best way of winning. I don't trust their middle order at all, if I'm being honest. I think Asif Ali is okay, and I think Shan Massoud is okay. I don't think either are remarkable. I think they will need their openers to perform, and one of them hit a 50 pretty much every game if they're to win the tournament. But that was very impressive on a Pakistani front. Then the next game, it was the Harry Brooks show. Basically, he had 81 not out of 35 balls. Very impressive innings from him. And ably supported by Ben Duckett, who backed up his 43 the game before with an unbeaten 70. Those two really carried the side the whole way. They didn't look like they get near 200 till those two got to the crease. Will Jacks on debut probably deserves a note for 40 off 22. So that was good. Uh, Pakistan, in response, just couldn't really keep up with the rate at any point. There was one period where they went consistently at 11 and over, and the required rate continued to go up, which did feel slightly demoralizing. Um, pick of the batsman was very much Shan Massoud, who hit an unbeaten 65 or 40. I get the feeling with how, with the lack of confidence that Pakistan have in that three to five or three to six area that he is now pretty much confirmed for the world cup off that one innings i think that will him babar and rizwan will make up the top three um mark wood returned for the first time in six months in that game and was very impressive to my knowledge he bowled the quickest over ever bowled by an englishman with an average speed of about 155k an hour and took three for 24 off his four uh fourth game pakistan won they tied the series two two Again, it felt like Pakistan underperformed with the bat. They were led by Mohamed Rizwan's 88. However, that 88 took 67 balls, which is a bit slow, particularly on a pitch as flat as that. But for some reason, England just couldn't recover. We lost a few early wickets and from there on just struggled. Um, middle order did a bit. Duckett, Brook and Moeen hitting 33, 34, 29 respectively. Then Dawson almost won us the game in what was actually a very exciting finish. He got 34 of 17 to leave us with, I think, three wickets in hand and only nine needed off the last two overs. Um, we then choked and lost. Um, <laughs> we saw Reese Topley come out to bat, quite possibly the worst batsman ever seen in international cricket. I think we have now seen, and it's come through this series, his batting, Dom Sibley's leg spin, and Alex Hill's catching are possibly the three worst types of each <laughs> area of the game known to man. It's been an impressively unusual series in that regard. And I think everyone is also a bit confused by the fact it's a seven-game series. Personally, I think seven games is too many. 
I know that sentiment is shared by, I think, a couple other people on this podcast. So it is all still to play for. It is a historic, historic tour, we have to say as well. The first yeah. time back to Pakistan. For exactly. First time years. to think 2005, but I could be wrong. It might be earlier. I know James Anderson was pretty much 20 odd when he came here last time and he's now 40. So it's it's been a while. But no, whoever. So the series is very much up in the air. No side can win the series in the next game. So it looks like it's shaping up to be a good finish in the new location that they're traveling to. I guess a big question for you is out of the, the you know, Harry Brook, Ben Duckett, Will Jacks, out of these types, um, how many have a chance of getting in the top first side, I guess? Which it's, the, it's become a difficult one because... Generally speaking, they wouldn't have come close. None of them got selected in the squad. However, I do think there's probably a chance with Harry Brook getting selected. That may well come down to how we divvy up the team. He has had four quite effective games. He's passed 30 virtually every game he's played, highlighted by that quite remarkable 81 not out. He does look someone that will be good on Australian pitches. I think he's the only one of the three that has a valid shout to make it into the side. Will Jacks is okay, but he's not played enough is the basic answer. He's played two games, and I think he went out for a duck last night in his second game. So I would hold off on claiming anyone else gets in. But it's a lot more open than it used to be now that both Roy and Bairstow are missing. It is worth noting that both Livingston and Butler aren't in this team for Pakistan, but will return for the World Cup. So there will be a tightening of spots. I'm expecting to see a basic grouping of definitely Butler opening. Who he opens with will definitely be a challenge. Phil Salt was the incumbent. He's failed. Three is arguably the biggest debate if you're English because it's Darwin Milan. I know Ted has the quite an affinity for Darwin Milan. However, he just hasn't really performed. He had a great 100, which made people think he's pretty safe in the side. But he was rested last night. Possibly dropped, but it feels like he was rested. But possibly if someone like a Brook comes through and is ex as explosive as he looks, then it may become a difficult case to keep hold of him. Particularly if we feel we have to play Ben Stokes, who I suspect will prefer to bat three of pretty much anyone in the side. That's probably his best spot. So it will be interesting. It's really only Brooke that can break in. I'd say it's Brooke and Hales are the only two I could see actually getting a game that aren't currently in the established side. But you never know. It's certainly not completely settled. On the plus side, I think this is too many options rather than too few options. So it's not necessarily a bad issue to have. Mm. Ethan's just told me here, Darren Milan has the highest T20 ranking of all time. So... That's yeah, a, he did. One good step when he because he he averaged fifty for pretty much the first two years of his career. He was the, if my memory is correct, he was the fastest player in T Twenty history to a thousand runs. The issue is since passing that thousand run mark, he's just dropped off. He was averaging I think forty nine when he passed a thousand runs. He's now averaging thirty seven. Yes, thirty seven is still good, but to get a decrease in twelve of your batting average, you do have to average pretty poorly he's someone that's been always a bit awkward because he's just not as explosive as the others. He's not really playing in that English style that people expect. He's, he's just, not, he's honestly he's more just, similar to a Steve Smith he's figure. Just out there doing nice cover drives all the time. That's why I like Pretty him. much. He's, he's supposed to be the glue, but the argument would be particularly if we go for seven batsmen, we may not need a glue. And that's where I think the point will come in particularly if we see someone like a Joss Butler, who is quite well known for, well, at least in his more recent state, starting slow and building an innings, then I don't think we will need Milan. I think we'll see Stokes come in at three, and that may be the end of his international career. We should also say Alex Hales back in the T20 squad as well, despite having a um, quite a high-profile um, sort of well, disagreement with Ben Stokes, I was hearing the other day, like they really don't like each other, both of them. So that's quite interesting. Um, Ethan, anything um, that took your eye from this series? Uh, I, I don't mind the the 7 T20 series, to be fair. I, I thought it was a bit strange that we went all the way to India for three T20s. Yeah. Now we're, 
we're going back and there's no more than that. So if it's a, it's almost NBA style. It feels like for these seven game series. I think I think five's a, a a nice middle ground, but but seven isn't too bad. I think I think we need some proper pitches uh, in yeah. Pakistan and in Pakistan. India. Oh, too many high scoring sides. I'd hate to be a, a fast bowler there. I mean, we can criticize Cummins and Hazelwood, but if if the best bowler in the world by the rankings is getting hit for twenty off their one over, and it's sort of expected, then either get some bigger grounds or some proper pitches. And then maybe we'll see the the true quality of of batsmanship, which is the big bash. Uh, we'll see that the, those those trends um, correlating on the international stage. <laughs> well, I I couldn't agree more with everything you said there. So thanks very much, for that Ethan. Uh, how about you, Navad? Anything you've taken from it? I think so far in the series, one thing that stood out to me really is how dependent Pakistan are on those opening two, Baba Azam and Rizwan. I think once they fall, and, and we saw that, I think, in the second game where they only scored single digits, or is it the third game? Hang on. Fourth, oh, no, sorry. The, the fourth T20. Um, no, no, sorry. I've scratched that. I've just Definitely looked at the wrong one. It wasn't the fourth one. But anyway, my point is, if once they don't perform, you're really reliant on a really shaky middle order. And right now, apart from the few players that Pearson mentioned, uh, like Sean Masood, there's no one really, and Asif Ali, I think, there's no one really there that can perform to the same extent or to, to a respectful, I think, um, sort of, um, yeah, the way that you need to perform in a T20. Um, and it really, it's just what I was harking on about earlier. It's that consistency that Pakistan really lack. And in T20, I said, the two things you need are aggressive batting and uh, consistency. And right now, I think, uh, other than the openers, Pakistan's really lacking in consistency. So looking forward to the World Cup, uh, and I think Pearson also made, made this point, I think they really need to sort out that middle order issue um, and not be so reliant on on the top, the, the, the openers, really. So that's, I think, one of the, the main takeaways so far. We have three more games, so hopefully someone else uh, performs and, and, and proves me wrong. Well, I'll, I'll just, as a brief question to the three of you, we've seen four games in this series so far. We've all identified pretty much the same issue. Their middle order's shaky. Their spinners are a bit iffy. Their paces sometimes lack a bit of depth and their top order's as good as anyone in world cricket. I thought, and the two Australian supporters here may not like this, I thought they were the, looked the strongest side in last year's World Cup. In the games I watched them play, they consistently impressed in a way I didn't think others did. Do any of you think Pakistan could actually win the World Cup this time around, or are they a bit more shaky and a bit off? Ethan? Yeah, they, they did knock off some some big upsets. I personally felt heading into the, those semifinals that out of England, um, England or, or Pakistan, I, I would have much rather Pakistan, just because... Just I think they're a side you can beat in a one-off, but certainly they're a side that are capable of causing some upsets as well. I think their their catching is too poor to perform consistently across the tournament. I think that's one of the major things that's held a team like Sri Lanka back over the last few years. If if you can't catch, you're even with a good bowling attack, you're in major trouble. Um, and so personally, I, I mean, with the way the groups work, it's it's essentially knockouts even in the rounds in the couple of big games. I mean, they're going to play India. If they win that game, they'll they'll make it to the finals. Um, but to to win you know, twice in a row in the finals, I, I don't really back them. And I think even in the Asia Cup, you know, they had a pretty solid campaign to beat India. They were shaky against Afghanistan, and that all sort of capitulated in the final as well. So just not not consistent enough for me. And their their catching needs a lot of work. Yeah, it's a good point you make. We, we sort of don't talk about the catching or fielding element, but it does does have a, a big effect. Um, Navon? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Ethan makes a good point. I think taking the chances that are, arise is really key, especially in T Twenty um, and also in, in Test cricket as well, especially. But um, I think for me, it's still that that consistency. I think they just lack the consistency um, in the in the batting, not the the openers. The openers, as Pearson said, are world class. They're absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, if they were Sri Lankan, I'd be raving on about them more. But um, I think it really, for me, it's just if you lose those two, Pakistan are basically screwed. So 
I think that's why, unless they can address those middle order batting issues and batting consistency, uh, and, as well, and as well as the, the catching aspect and, and all the other aspects um, on the field as well, um, unless they can address those issues, I think Pakistan don't really have um, a good chance of, of winning. I think they might come close um, like they did in the Asia Cup. Australia is a bit uh, flat. It's known for its flat wickets. And I think the batsmen, the openers in particular, really love that. But I think with, without that consistency, I don't think they'll make it that far. I think we saw in the UAE or well, last year's T20 how much of an effect the pitchers do have as well. So I guess there's the question of how they'll perform in Australia. I think their bowlers could perform pretty well because a lot of them, Harris, Ralph, Hasnain, Kadir, they've all performed you know, in the Big Bash before. They've got a fair bit of experience down here. Um, but their batsmen, Rizwan and Azam, you know, um, whether they'll have be able to have that same consistent dominant effect in Australia, I guess, is the question. Pearson, you posed the question. Uh, you can have the final word, I guess. My, I think my answer is no. I just, I think, as I think most of us have said, I think they're just too reliant on too few players. I think their openers are very good, but no surprise, we know they're very good. They've not really won tournaments with those openers performing before, mm. so there's no guarantee they'll do it now. I'm also not completely convinced by their bowling attack. They need their spinners to come off consistently, and I just don't really see it happening. But I don't think it's a bad side. I think it's good enough to make semis, pretty much what Ethan said. I don't think it will win both the semi and the final. I think a top-tier performance for them will be making the final. I'd put an expectation on them making the semi, although I'd need to check what the actual setup of the group stages are to confirm that. Yeah, but I guess the thing is with T20, as we saw last year with Australia, all it takes is, you know, one good game in that semi-finals. Um, and or, or two and you've and you've won it so um definitely anything could happen especially with the way the countries are at the moment okay um well i think that just about brings us to the end of the podcast today any final words from anyone no that's good <laughs> um thank you ethan Navad, and pearson thank you to everyone listening um we'll be back next week goodbye